Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel message is from Ken Witzma. Ken is the lead pastor of Village Church, a multicultural Christian community in Beaverton, Oregon. He is also the founder of the Justice Conference, which has reached over 30,000 people across seven countries with theology of justice and God's call to give our lives away. He is the author of several books, including The Myth of Equality, which was named one of the top five religion books of 2017 by Publishers Weekly. Ken comes in partnership with JBU's Diversity Symposium, Jesus and Concern for the Ethnic Other. Well, good morning. Thank you, JBU and Dr. Posey. And uh, Marquita is here somewhere. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, this is my first time really to Arkansas. Um, so this, my whole view of Arkansas is going to be based on, on what happens today and tomorrow uh, for the next 30 years. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be traveling with my wife, Tamara, uh, who doesn't always get to travel with me. We have four daughters, uh, so that's a, a lot of, of women in the house for me, um, but it's fun to have her with me. Um, I'd like to open in a word of prayer, just as the worship team was singing, I uh, found that it, um, it really made me want to make sure that we, we invite the, the, the presence of God into space in, in a way where we're going to receive uh, and, and try and be open to what uh, the Spirit might be leading. So if you would, let me just pray for us. Father God, there are um, a lot of men and women in this chapel right now. And they're coming with different kinds of stress, whether it's physical stress or relational, whether it's financial stress, whether it's worried about teaching classes or preparing for classes. And I would just ask that, that whatever the surface things are, that you would help us seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And that we would know that all the, the true things, the meaningful things, the important things would be added as well. That the joy that we seek, that the peace that we seek, that the love that we seek is only going to come through our, our fellowship with the Spirit. It's going to be fruit that's born out of relationship with you. And so we ask this morning that with our little bit of faith, you would provide more, and that you would help us see that we would not be like those in the Old Testament or the Pharisees in the New Testament, that though they had eyes, they did not see, and though they had ears, they did not hear. Help us to see and hear now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a little bit uh, just about me. Um, my last name is one of like 10 in the world. Um, it's Weitzma, which means that uh, I can get any name on any social media handle I want by just putting my first name and my last name. Um, but my dad was an immigrant. So my dad was born in 1944 in Nazi-occupied Holland. Uh, I, I grew up with stories about my, grandma, uh, my grandmother when she was too pregnant with my dad in 1944, uh, having to help my grandfather dress up like a woman um, so that he could ride a bike 10 miles into the countryside to get food. Uh, all the men were in hiding because although the Jewish people of Holland had been taken away early in the war, late in the war, it was all able-bodied men that were being taken and put into factories. And so uh, this was kind of my dad's upbringing um, in that context. At age eight, he came to the United States on a boat, kind of a quintessential picture 
Uh, Ellis Island was closed at that time. They had closed it uh, earlier. And so um, by the 50s, the 1950s, you'd go right past Ellis Island and land just on the tip of New Jersey there called Hoboken, New Jersey. They would process immigrants and put you on a train to where you were going. Um, but so because of that, I'm a second-generation American. And as I grew up, and when I turned about age eight or nine, um, because of my dad's experience, we sponsored uh, a family that came from Cambodia. They had fled the genocide in Cambodia in the 1970s uh, under the Khmer Rouge regime. I don't know if you know about uh, this, but Pol Pot was the leader there. And so they had fled Cambodia, made it to Thailand, and my dad had sponsored, my parents had sponsored uh, to bring them over and to be able to have them be housed with us. Uh, refugees and asylum seekers back in the 70s had to have sponsors, um, and it was, it was a different kind of context, and you'd go live with a sponsoring family. So when I was eight years old, a family of five, husband, wife, and a baby, and then a brother and sister uh, came and lived with us, and I watched uh, as my parents helped them go through the naturalization process, uh, get driver's licenses, learn how to um, to speak English as a second language. And it put something in me at, a, at an early age, uh, I think, that, that was a, a deep empathy or compassion for um, human experience or, or what other people are going through. And so at age 22, when, when God really got a hold of my life, it was justice that, that I wanted to study and that I wanted to kind of um, go deeper with. In, in philosophy or in, academic, in the academic world, we'll call it moral philosophy uh, or ethics. And so that's kind of been my life's passion is, is thinking about ethics, thinking about justice, but from a theological standpoint. So if we roll through this real quick, this is one of my favorite verses, and, and, uh, and it's just simply a part of what we see uh, as a prelude to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So let me read it. It's Isaiah 51, 4 through 5. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me and my justice will become a light to the nations. By the way, justice is not punitive justice. We, we so pigeonhole the word justice in America as to, as to make it about punishment. Uh, we think of criminal justice, but frankly, criminal justice is just a slice of a pie that includes international justice or business law and ethics um, or uh, social justice, which is just the justice that, that we see in society with vulnerable persons, right? So um, justice is supposed to be generative. It's a positive thing. My justice will be a, a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. Uh, if I had time to go into it today, I would, but we'll, we'll hit on it tomorrow about the theological um, or gospel implications of the word justice. And you see it right here, righteousness, salvation, and justice with the right arm of God, which is really the inbreaking of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to work restorative justice to fix what is broken in the world. So I've, I've just been uh, in love with this idea of trying to get at what is justice and to try and just mine the depths of it. And that's a really important thing because culturally, this is about as, as good as we get in, in terms of an understanding of justice. Um, I told you I have four daughters, so this was back to school shopping, and we're in a mall in Sacramento, and I'm sitting down and just waiting for uh, the torture to end. Um, and I turned around, and, and I saw this shirt. 
And um, justice is a brand mark made in Vietnam because of, of cheap labor or, or potentially the exploitation of children. And a message that says, love yourself. So justice, which is really about um, something uh, external to ourselves, that things would be as they ought to be, a right relationship with God, self, others, and creation, has somehow become this thing that's a self-help message that I'm going to tell myself. Um, and so there's a real need for us to get into this. Uh, as a part of justice, there's a real need for the church to begin to wrestle with one of the greatest historic injustice, uh, injustices of the last 500 years, and that's our understanding of race and ethnicity and what that has done to the church. So I'm going to give us a narrative arc, and we're going to begin it this morning, and we're going to finish it tonight, and so we'll see how far we get uh, with kind of the, the slideshow. But the beginning of it is that I need you to help me read slides um, by participating and, and reading what's in bold. Um, not only because that's what I need you to do for audience participation, but this screen is so small that my eyes actually won't be able to see what's bold. Um, so <laughs> you, can, you, can help me, uh, you can help me out. But it's going to be a lot of passages. Uh, I used to have more. I cut it in half, and then last night on the airplane, I cut it in half again. So just think of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, almost endless instances of God talking about in the scriptures his desire to bring the nations back to himself, that God desires a relationship with all of his creation. Um, by the way, the, the word for nations here in Greek is ethnos, so we're really talking about the ethnic diversity that God has created. So read with me if you could. Uh, we'll start with just the bold ones and I'll click through. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That your ways may be known on earth. Your salvation among all nations. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. All the nations are your inheritance. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deed among all peoples. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. All the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Go and make disciples of all the nations. 
My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel so that all nations might believe and obey him. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchase men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And I'll just add from the bottom there, salvation belongs to our God, amen, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is the mission statement that we came up with for the church I work at in Beaverton. So uh, Village is just outside of Portland. Uh, and we have close to 30 different nationalities um, that, that come uh, to Village. And it's a multicultural church. That means multi-generational. It means multi-ethnic. Uh, and it doesn't just mean in terms of uh, diversity that you see uh, kind of in, in the audience. Um, but it's also... Uh, diverse in terms of whose voices you get to hear and, and the people that are making decisions. We also have first generation sitting in, in uh, our services with us, which means that it's incredibly hard to preach there because you have to manuscript all the way through because like uh, at the United Nations or uh, I don't know where else they do it, but a live translation is happening in the back uh, in Korean for people to listen to and once a month uh, for Spanish speakers to be able to listen to. So not say uh, a sentence and then someone translates it, but just as you're talking real time, somebody's translating in the back. And so we really embrace this idea that, that God is doing something, that the gospel is doing something with the nation. So our mission statement is that we exist to be a light among the nations for the glory of God. Now, the interesting thing, and I think this is the tension point and why it's important to talk about um, the multicultural aspect of the church, is I don't think anyone that I've ever talked to will deny that we're on a trajectory towards having a beautiful diversity or a, a mosaic around the throne when we get to heaven, when we get to the book of Revelation, that we're going to have all of this stuff worked out. But the, the problem or the fallacy is that we think that that trajectory is okay as being kind of a graduated thing because it's then that it's supposed to be multicultural, not necessarily now. That's the fallacy. So let me talk to that real quick. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and, and we know this to be Pentecost. And the interesting thing about Pentecost that, um, that I've really just this year been wrestling with is that that I always thought it was Peter that preached first at Pentecost. Um, it's actually the Holy Spirit that preaches first at Pentecost. Uh, the disciples were there, didn't really know that that was going to be the day, and the Holy Spirit chose that moment, descended, and all of a sudden, 
all of them, not just Peter, but all of them were speaking in tongues that other people could understand. And the tongues, the, the, the things that were, were being communicated, the, the language that was being spoken was about the glory of God or the, the wonders that God has done. So the, the first person to preach at Pentecost, uh, the person that gets the church birthed is the Holy Spirit. It was just Peter that did the afterglow sermon or uh, if you're in a Pentecostal uh, denomination, that might make sense. But this is who heard that, that first sermon. Let's read it real quick. Um, Parthians, Medes, and Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, uh, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or our own languages. That is a, an incredibly diverse sampling of people that are here, that are listening to the preaching, first of the Holy Spirit and then of Peter. And, and what that basically means, uh, I'll just show you how we would have done this at our church. All of our slides are in three different languages. Uh, and when I preached on it, I, I highlighted the different regions just so you could see in some sense what we're talking about in terms of the ethnic diversity. Um, what really we get from this is that the church doesn't end multicultural. The church began multicultural. The church doesn't end in Revelation as a multicultural reality. It began as a multicultural reality. And, and, and the fact that that seems strange to us shows that we've so grown up with or, or what we're familiar with, not just us, but going back generations and generations in America, uh, our monocultural churches, whether white or black or other um, Korean churches or, or Spanish-speaking churches, we have a system in America that basically says, go get with the people like you and do church together. And, and in that context, everyone, in some sense, um, gets to experience one way of understanding God, not influenced by other languages or culturals, uh, cultures or the values that those cultures bring. When I'm around my, my Korean brothers and sisters, I learn something about the reverence of God they have a five o'clock prayer meeting every morning. I've made it one time. Um, I learned something about the reverence of God, about getting on your knees and praying. I learned something about missions. I, I developed this kind of uh, American way of uh, missions was something we used to do. And then I kind of begin to take it lightly and, and don't think much of it. And when I get around my Korean brothers and sisters, I really learn that proclaiming the gospel to the nations is something that every, uh, every generation needs to be passionate about. And when I, I get with my uh, Latino brothers and sisters, my Latino brothers and my, my Latina sisters, I learn something about what it means to not be stuck by time or to be in such a hurry and to actually enjoy yourself. Um, and that that's a cultural value and that food matters and that being together matters and that family matters. And that shapes my understanding of Scripture because, frankly, Scripture has a much more communal aspect or collectivistic aspect than my own individual lens kind of makes of it. But so the church doesn't end multicultural. The church begins multicultural. And it really should make us ask, why, why is 
11 o'clock on Sundays, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, still the most segregated hour in America. When I go to church conferences, it's all about how to grow your church, church growth. Uh, And then there's a breakout on the multicultural church. That's a special side thing that maybe some urban churches do. But we have lost the sense of, of necessity that we are supposed to be together and that we're supposed to enjoy that now and we're supposed to work that stuff out now and and then we get to celebrate that it's completed when we get around the throne in the book of Revelation centered around Jesus Christ. But picture it now, Jesus is the head of the church, the head of the body of Christ. That means the body of Christ in Revelation is a diverse one. How in the world is the body of Christ or should uh, should not the body of Christ be a diverse uh, diverse one as well? Um, so that brings up three things. If, if this is a, an issue that we have to work out in terms of our relationship to other cultures or other peoples, um, other races, other ethnicities, uh, what do we take away from that? And the first thing I'd say is that we need to intentionally empower multi-ethnic leaders. We need to intentionally empower multi-ethnic leaders. Now that's not that we don't empower other people. It's that the dominant culture is already going to be in power. So there's an intentionality of grabbing people from the margins and empowering them so that they have a voice in the community as well. Here's Acts chapter 6. It says this, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, this is the early church, the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, it's all of those countries we just read about. It's all of those Jews that are speaking not Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, They complained against the Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to to prayer and the ministry of the word. Uh, The interesting thing here is... um, there's always going to be an underrepresented group, uh, and that always should matter to us. That's just the first thing to say. Any group in the church that's raising their hands and saying, hey, we're being overlooked, it could, it could be the introverts. <laughs> um, it, could be, it could be whatever the group is. Any group in the church that raises their hand and says, we're being, we're being excluded and being overlooked, we should care about that and take that into consideration. The disciples do, but they don't um, decree new policy or create new systems or structures uh, that are going to, based on their wisdom, meet the needs of the Greek-speaking Jews. They say to that community, you raise up leaders, empower leaders to take care of that and address that so that there's equality that's manifested in equity in our early church community. Does that make sense? Um, it continues here and says that the proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Nacanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a, com- a convert or proselyte to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them, and then the word of God spread, the number of disciples increased. So doing a multicultural church well should be our vehicle for church growth. 
our pursuit of equality and, and love manifested as justice, right? Justice is what love uh, looks like in, in the public space. Cornell West um, talks about that. Uh, when we're doing this stuff right, that's what should lead to church growth, not techniques on, on how we manipulate people with their experiences, which is often what it becomes. Uh, the other part that's interesting in this is just looking at the names. This is uh, the Greek inter interlinear. And so if you look at the names, I'll highlight them for you. These are all Greek names. Stephanos, it's a Greek name. Uh, Philip, uh, Philippos, uh, was named after Philip of Macedon. Um, Alexander the Great's father was named Philip. So, so that's the famous kind of Greek name. If someone's named Philip, that's a Greek name coming down to us. These people that are chosen are all people of that community. They speak the language of that community. They know the culture of that community. They have relationships in that community. They care deeply about that community and they're gonna make sure that that underrepresented community is fairly treated in that early church setting. So the first thing is really that we would intentionally empower um, multi-ethnic leaders. The apostles recognized the multicultural reality of the church of Jesus, and they empowered multi-ethnic leaders to uniquely and fully meet the needs of all the people. Um, just a side note, there are a lot of nonprofit organizations or Christian organizations where the hierarchy uh, is not diverse at the top, where it's, it's white male-centered, uh, and we, we begin to take account of diversity, but it usually looks at us using our wisdom to try and, um, and change the diversity two or three or four levels down. And it has to look like us seeing things the way, uh, the way we would see it if we weren't in leadership. The way we would see it if we weren't trying to protect power. The way we would see it if we weren't trying to prevent losing something. Because there's such a fear that comes in going backwards. And if we were on the other side of that line, how would we want other people to handle this decision making? We wouldn't want just something to be given to us or to be done for us. We'd want to be included in the leadership and ultimately be in a, uh, in a position that we could be influencing the decisions for all of the people, all of the church. So we really need to keep talking about this. And if, that, if that's uncomfortable, um, it should be. Second thing is we, we need to work toward multicultural churches. Galatians, uh, this whole book is written because there was a, an argument about whether the church at Antioch should be a multicultural church or not. Uh, the church at Antioch, uh, the argument, should the Gentile believers first have to become Jews and then they get to be Christians along with the rest of the believers? Or can they come directly to Christ and be in fellowship with the Jewish believers, sharing meals, which was prevented by Jewish law? So the conversation was really about this. Should the, the early church be an assimilationist church with a monoculture, one dominant culture? Or was it going to be a multicultural reality that showed the diversity of God's creation to the glory of Jesus Christ, the head of the church? Um, there are three different models. I take this from Peter Cha uh, out at Trinity. I love how he, he did this pretty quickly. 
uh, but just with these diagrams showing that there are three different models of a multicultural church. One is an assimilationist, uh, where we, we em- uh, emphasize the dominant culture. Musically, it's going to be the dominant culture. Teaching style, the dominant culture. Uh, how we fellowship and program that is going to be dominant culture. Uh, it's it's going to be structured in a certain kind of way. In America, it's usually time-bound. There's a clock. There's a countdown clock. It's ticking on me right now. We're going to do small groups. Those are going to be programmed. We're going to have curriculum. We're going to have all that stuff. But it's usually emphasizing one culture and this idea of colorblindness. And colorblindness is, is a, a horrible way of, of talking about racial reconciliation. It's basically saying uh, you should pick up a book called uh, Beyond Colorblind by Sarah Shin. And she starts right out in the introduction and says, saying that you want to be colorblind, um, I want to be friends with you, but, but the color thing or uh, the racial thing is awkward. Let's set it to the side and build our friendship on, on other things completely apart from that. She said that would be akin to telling somebody that's the victim of sexual abuse uh, that you don't want to deal with that awkward part of who they are, that you just want to be friends with them without that. So let's set your sexual abuse to the side, and then we can go build our friendship. Um, we are who we are. Friendship means that we take into account all of who someone is, especially their difficult experiences. And so talking about race is not something we should be scared of. Talking about color is not something we should be scared of. We're just not used to it. But that means we got to get used to it, not just ignore it. When my kids come to me and say they don't want to grow up into something or become mature, they'd rather just set it aside. That's usually when we have a deep conversation, right? You don't get to just bypass math. You know, you don't get to just bypass taking a shower. Like you learn to do the things that you don't like to do and you grow up into adulthood. Um, The next one is just a pluralist and this is your typical not your typical, this would be having a bunch of different uh, congregations in, in one church. It's one church, but not really together. It's different congregations, but this group never interacts with that group. This group meets in that building, but never inter- interacts with this group. And probably leadership is going to come from one of those, uh, those groups. So they don't actually blend it together and learn from one another. And then this is the integrationist model. And that's saying... No, we actually want to experience um, Christ together. And there's an East African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. It is incredibly hard to do a multicultural church. Uh, It's incredibly hard to do multicultural church services. This is uh, one of my colleagues on staff where I work, um, Dr. Paul Choi. And he says this, in a multicultural church service... Everybody needs to feel some kind of inconvenience. If you come to a service and it's multicultural and there's not a single point of tension for you, it it means that it's not a multicultural service. It means it's a service built right around your wants, wishes, and desires. It's basically built around your comfort level or, or your appetite. But if we come together and say everyone here is going to be treated equally and we're going to make sp- um, space in terms of the time or, or the, the order of service that everyone is honored, there's going to be times when you're uncomfortable. And that uncomfortable part is actually beautiful because we all know that there's tension that leads to growth. 
And when we want that tension, we can grow faster. But we've been programmed by the American church to want comfort. And comfort is the one thing, couch potato, that doesn't usually lead to any kind of growth. Um, This is the third one. We'll get to this tonight. Uh, We're going to intentionally empower multi-ethnic leaders. We're going to work towards multicultural churches. And we're going to name the historic and personal barriers to reconciliation. I was at Geneva College outside of Pittsburgh not too long ago, and I mentioned this, and, and, uh, but I didn't show the slides, and they got really mad at me, so I, I'll just show you the two slides that I mentioned. But this is a famous one, Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel. What's fascinating about this is not just that, that God the Father is a white European male, but that this was the first time that God had ever been painted And he was being painted as a white European male that came to dominate our social consciousness uh, from that time forward. Up until that time, you didn't paint God the Father. You painted a dove for the Holy Spirit. You painted rings around people's heads to show that there was divinity there, baby Jesus or other. But you didn't paint God the Father. It was seen as out of bounds. It's only when the Renaissance influence comes in and then is, is being brought in by Renaissance popes to do religious art that you see God the Father depicted in this way. And what this does is it shapes our consciousness from that time forward. There's not a single person in this room that has not seen that picture. What does that do to actually shape our thinking? This is Da Vinci's Last Supper. By the way, this is a massive painting. If you go to Milan, uh, you'll see it uh, in, in what used to be the dining room of this old monastery, and it is a massive wall. Uh, it's where they did their meals, so, so that's why the theme. Uh, a lot of the Last Supper paintings were in, in buildings uh, where, where monks or, uh, or nuns would take their meals. Um, it fit the theme. But notice the disciples here. Uh, to Jesus' left, you see a, a young-looking person, um, Dan Brown would say this is a woman, but, but it's probably John, uh, who was the youngest, very young, maybe not even a teenager, potentially uh, being depicted here, and that's how you would depict somebody that was young. Uh, and then if you go over from, from John, uh, you see somebody there that's the only brown person in the painting. Do you see it? Da Vinci uses darkness to portray, uh, portray Judas. And in fact, there's, um, depending on who you're talking to, he went to a prison and found somebody to, to depict this, uh, was probably trying to, to depict what he thought Jews in Palestine looked like. But you see this idea of colorization and, and the scale of goodness or holiness coming into our, our thinking historically uh, in a way that we don't even know. Religious history informs and shapes our thinking long before theological reasoning does. We can see bias in in children as young as two, certainly by age four. And so when we're dealing with what we actually think and feel and believe, we're dealing with things that are in us long before we ever started thinking theologically. So that means we have to go back and look at and address what actually came into me before I started thinking about what I wanted to come into me. And that's what we're going to talk about um, tonight. We're going to get into some rowdy stuff. So please, um, I'm not trying to bring anything against anybody. I haven't named a city, I haven't named a place, I haven't named a person. Uh, These are communal topics that we get to talk about, hopefully without feeling defensive 
um, so that we can all come together and hopefully hang on to the good and let go of the bad. But thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you tonight. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.